0: It's good to see you all this morning. Like Corey said, my name's Andrew, one of the pastors here at GFC. Uh, we are in week two of a series we started last week called Silent Nights. Now it's Christmas time, and Christmas time for us nowadays usually isn't too silent, right? It's usually pretty bright. It's usually pretty loud. Um, It's just kind of all in your face. Christmas just kind of is everywhere at this time of year. There's nowhere in society that you can go where Christmas isn't there in some way, shape, or form. But last week, Pastor Corey, as he kicked off our series, he went back to before the first Christmas and talked about how the reality was between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There was a span of about 400 years of silence. Imagine that, 400 years where there isn't any new scripture revelation, God's people are waiting and anticipating uh, what's going to happen. They're waiting for God to show up and to do what he's been promising, because if you go throughout the whole Testament, you get all these promises that God's going to do this and this and this, and they're anticipating the coming Messiah. And last week, Pastor Corey, he talked about how, you know, silence for us at times, especially as modern Americans, can be pretty hard. You know, usually silence, we we feel like it's emptiness. We feel like something's wrong. We feel like something's broken. But the reality is silence can be a really good thing. And often silence is a result of God, the fact that God has done something. Like at the creation, how he worked and then he rested Or it's a sign that, you know what, God is preparing to do something like he did before the first Christmas. And Pastor Corey talked about how God was preparing the world and all the things that happened uh, culturally and different things to help prepare the way for the coming of Jesus. So there was silence. Today we get to talk about when that silence got broken, all right? Because it's fun to break the silence, right? All right, who, who in here would say, you know, you're that type of person uh, who likes surprise parties or throwing surprise parties for people, all right? Who here kind of likes to be big and loud and break the silence for people? No one? All right, we got one person, two people. All right, the rest of us, we're just, we're just boring, I guess. Okay, that's fine. But breaking the silence at times is, uh, is not good. But at other times, at the right times, it's an amazing, amazing thing. And so today we get to look at that. But every year, there are signs that anticipate the fact that our our yearly rhythm is going to get broken up with the season of Christmas. Um, You probably, each year, I feel this way, that those signs come earlier and earlier and earlier. All right? You start hearing the advertisements with the little Christmas jingles in them. Uh, The debate on, all right, should we start Christmas music now? Should we wait to start Christmas music? That happens every year earlier and earlier. You start seeing decorations. But you get all these signs every year anticipating the holiday season. And the same thing happened back before the first Christmas. There was uh, some signs that happened. And we're going to look at the very first sign. The very first sign that that said, you know what? God is breaking this silence. He's done. The time has come. He's prepared to bring about what he's been promising to do. All right? So we're going to go to Luke chapter 1. So if you have your Bible, feel free to open up to Luke chapter 1. We also have what's called a Uh, follow-along. There it is up on the screen. You can scan that QR code, go to our website, follow the follow-along. It has all the notes, all the scripture verses for today um, there. So we're in Luke chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 11 to 20. We have uh, a number of big passages we're going to kind of read through really quickly because I want us to get to this story. But we're plopping down in the middle of a scene. So kind of to set the stage, there's this guy named Zechariah, and he's a priest, and he has been uh, picked to do some work within the temple. And he's in the temple, he's doing his priestly duties, and he's about to have a visitor, all right? So that's the scene that we're stepping into. And this is what it says, Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 11. It says, While Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the incense altar, Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. But the angel said, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son, and you are to name him John. All right. Often, when we think about the first sign for the first Christmas, usually the first thing that pops into my head is the Christmas star, the shepherds out in the field. You think about the, the wise men coming from afar. But this is really the first sign that God is breaking the silence. It's not a message about the birth of Jesus. It's a message about the birth of a kid named John. So let's continue. Uh, In the next verse, verse 14, it says, "...you will have great joy and gladness." This is the angel talking to Zechariah about John, his son he's promising he'll have. "...and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord." He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. And he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. Man, imagine if an angel showed up to you and said, you're about to have a son like this. Like, wow. All right, this kid's going to be full of the Holy Spirit, and he's going to help prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. Let's just tuck that phrase away because we're we're going to come back to that. But let's go to the next the next part of this story. All right, so the angel has just told Zechariah what's going to happen. Now Zechariah starts talking to an angel. He says, uh, "How can I be sure this will happen? I'm an old man now, and my wife is also well along in years." Then the angel said, "I am Gabriel." I stand in the very presence of God. It was he who sent me to bring you this good news. But now, since you didn't believe what I said, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the child is born. For my words will certainly fulfilled, be fulfilled at the proper time. All right. This is the moment where God breaks his silence, where he sends Gabriel to come talk to Zechariah. He says, hey, you're going to have a son. His name's going to be John. He's going to be a special kid. He's, he's going to be full of the Holy Spirit. He's going to help prepare the way for the Lord. Basically, Gabriel's saying, your son, John, is going to be this sign, this signpost or this billboard to, to, to God's people saying, hey, look, the Messiah is coming. That's what he's going to do. Now, Zechariah doubts, and he has some good doubts. I mean, he says that they're his wife and he, they're well along in years. They're older. They're past a time when you would anticipate Uh, They should be having children. And so he's just like, uh, Gabriel, how is this going to happen? And Gabriel says, all right, you're going to be silenced. Now we're going to quick just kind of fast forward, summarize some things. The very next story, we learn about Gabriel visiting another person. That person's Mary. And he tells Mary about the fact that she's going to give birth to Jesus. We fast forward to the end of chapter 1, Luke 1, and we have the birth story of John. John is born, everyone is amazed, um, they name him John, Zechariah, he's able to speak then, his silence that Gabriel put on him is broken, and everyone is just amazed, and they're like, what in the world is going to happen? This is amazing. I can't believe that they had a kid, they were, they were older, now this, this Zechariah's silence is broken, this, this kid's going to do amazing things. And Zechariah, as soon as he's able to speak again, he starts prophesying. And he prophesies first about Jesus and who the Messiah is going to be, and then he prophesies about his son, and this is what he says. He says, And you, my little son, will be called the prophet of the Most High, because you will prepare the way for the Lord. You will tell his people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins because of God's tender mercy. The morning light from heaven is about to break upon us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide us to the path of peace. And then Luke, the author of uh, this gospel, he kind of gives us a snapshot into what's going to happen. In verse 80, he says, John grew up, became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he began his public ministry to Israel. So, here again, Zechariah, John's dad, says, hey, look, my son... Remember, he's, he's an infant. He's just been born. He says he's going to help prepare the way for the Lord. That's exactly what Gabriel said he was going to do. And Luke, he fast forwards, gives us one verse, says, yep, that's what's going to happen. Now, if you turn the page, if you're reading your Bible, turn the page or go to the next verse, you get to the classic Christmas story, the story of Jesus being born in Luke chapter 2. But we want to focus in on this first sign, this first sign, which is the birth. Of John. And the reality is that John's birth breaks the silence. God's been, been quiet. Not that God hasn't been ruling and reigning because he's God, but his like direct revelation into the world with his people, this is the moment he breaks it. It's with this kid named John. And that's this breaking of the silence is something that we get to then celebrate every year. The fact that God sent John, and after John is born, who's born? the Messiah. John's birth is miraculous. Jesus's birth is even more miraculous. But John's birth, it breaks that silence. Now, we're going to fast forward about 30 years. John's born. Jesus is born. We fast forward 30 years. They both grow up. Jesus hasn't started his public ministry yet, but John starts his. And if we go to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 1, Mark, when he wrote his gospel, for whatever reason, he was like, we don't need Jesus' birth, we don't need John's birth, but that's what Luke focused in. John just goes right to the public ministry. So we're going to start in uh, Mark chapter 1. Mark 1, and this is what it says. This is the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. It began just as the prophet Isaiah had written, look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way. He's a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming, clear the road for him. All right. So Mark starts off his gospel and he starts, he indicates that, look, this book is going to be about Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's the promised one. But then he goes right and starts quoting from the prophet Isaiah. And that section in the middle, it's actually not just from Isaiah. The first part is from the book of Malachi. And the second part's from the book of Isaiah. Basically, Mark's just saying, look, He's, he's quoting from the Old Testament, and he paraphrases these two passages. One is from Malachi 3, the other is from Isaiah 40. You can go and read it on your own time. And he highlights the fact that, look, there, not only Jesus was promised, but there was a guy who was promised who would come and would prepare the way for God's coming. And in verse 4, he says, this messenger was John the Baptist. He's like, look, not only has the Messiah come and he was promised, but also this forerunner of the Messiah named John. And he goes on in verse 4. He says, He was in the wilderness talking about John and preached that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. We can continue on into the next, uh, next verses. All of Judea, including all the people of Jerusalem, went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. His clothes were woven from coarse camel hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food he ate locusts and wild honey. Not the greatest fashion statement or the best diet, but that's what he did. And John announced, Someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to stoop down like a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. All right. This is the first sign of the first Christmas, the birth of this guy named John. And then you fast forward. He's the first sign that Jesus is about to do his public ministry. And you have, um, we had Zechariah prophesy that John would prepare the way. We had Gabriel like foretell that John would do that. You go back into the Old Testament, into the prophets. And in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah was written 700-ish years before Jesus came. And you have him proclaim predicting, prophesying that John would come. And then what do we see? John comes. He comes and he does exactly what has been prophesied about him. He's coming, preparing the way for God's people saying, look, someone is coming soon who is greater than I am. He's not saying, look, look, come look at me. I'm super great. Or look, maybe the Messiah will come someday. He's like, no, he's coming. He's better than me. Get ready. I, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Like he knows Jesus has come. And so there's been, John breaks the silence, his birth breaks the silence, um, but then also his ministry breaks the silence. Because Jesus was born, and then there was a silence of about 30 years where Jesus is growing up, he's living a normal life before he starts his public ministry. Now that's a lot. But I, what I want us to see from this is that John's life is a signpost pointing toward Jesus. That's what it was prophesied he would do. He'd prepare the way for the Lord. He'd be a sign pointing, look, look for the one who's greater than I. Look for the one who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Look for the one who, who is so much greater that I can't even untie his sandals. Like, that's what his life was all about. Now, John, he, he, his life was basically like one of those signs we see along the road. I don't know if you've ever been on a long car ride, and you're just you're so tired, or you're so hungry, and you just can't wait to be done. You can't wait to see that exit. And before you see your destination, you see the sign, or, or Google Maps indicates like two miles down the road, turn right, and you're like, oh, you're so excited. You get that sign that the destination is right around the corner, and it's so exciting. It's basically like if Jesus is Chick-fil-A, John is the sign pointing to Chick-fil-A, all right? How cool would that be, all right? That's what John gets to be. He gets to be that sign saying, look, don't come to me. Go over there. That's where the good stuff is. That's where the Messiah is. John had an amazing privilege. Like, what an honor, the fact that we sang earlier about Emmanuel, like God has come. John literally got to be the one saying, look, he's here. Get excited. Now, the cool thing is, the cool thing is, We have that same exact privilege. We can go to the next slide. We see that John, he had a miraculous birth. John, he's full of the Holy Spirit. John knows the truth about Jesus, that he's the Messiah, and his life is pointing forward as a signpost saying, look, Jesus is here. But here's the thing. John had a miraculous birth, and as believers, we have the same thing. As believers, we are born again. ever like realize that? Like if you're here today and you're a Jesus follower, you know, in John chapter three, Jesus tells us that we have to be born again, not physically, but spiritually. There's this sense where we have to come to a realization that we are dead in our sin and we need Jesus to save us. And we accept him as our savior. We are born again spiritually into his family. That's miraculous. Don't lose sight of the fact that If you are born again, that is a miracle in your life because you were literally dead and now you are alive. John had a miraculous birth, but we have a miraculous birth too as believers spiritually. John is full of the Holy Spirit and the reality is as believers, we too are filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus comes and then after he leaves, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells and fills God's people. Again, if you're here today and you're a Jesus follower, Holy Spirit, he lives in you. John knows the truth about Jesus, and as believers, we know the truth about Jesus. We know he's the savior of the world. And so John's life was a signpost pointing to the Messiah, and the reality is that as believers, our life is meant to be a signpost pointing to Jesus too. We get that same exact privilege. How amazing is that? God himself wants you to point to him. Like when we stop and think about like how small we are as as human beings, as creatures, when we stop and think about how vast creation is, when we stop and think about how broken and sinful we are and God's like, oh yeah, I want you to point to me, the God of the universe. That's an amazing privilege. Now, maybe you're here today though and maybe you're not a Jesus follower and you're like, you know what? This doesn't apply to me. Or maybe you're here and you're like me and you hear this, and you're like, that's awesome! That's really scary. And you get this sense of like, man, I don't know how to do that, man. This is scary. Life is hard enough. Now I have this pressure to point people to Jesus. But here's the, here's the thing, whether you feel those things or not. Everyone's life is pointing somewhere. Your life points somewhere, whether you like it or not. And what I mean by that is, is everyone's life is communicating to the world around you. Your life is a walking, talking billboard. Now, there's all sorts of things on the walking, talking billboard of your life. There's all the little preferences and opinions you have, the likes and dislikes. You know, people can look at you and they know, oh, this is the type of fashion you like, or you like coffee versus tea, or this is the type of music you like, or this is the type of sports team you like, or uh, you like baseball more than football, or whatever it is. The things that you like, who you are, people just naturally get a sense of like, oh, you think this is important. Oh, you think this matters. I'm not talking about those things. I'm talking about the bigger thing that our life is pointing to. Because while our life is pointing to all these little details, the things we like, dislike, our life is also pointing to the bigger reality, the thing that we believe in, the thing that we think is most valuable in life. Our life is a walking, talking billboard about what we think is most important, what we think life is all about. And my guess is if you just stop and think about the people you spend time with, you can, based on the way they live, what they say, how they spend their time, how they spend their money, how they spend their resources, what they choose to do, what they don't choose to do, all of those things give you clues as to where the sign of their life is pointing. And the same is true for you. People spend time with you, and they they get a sense of where your life is pointing, And there are all kinds of things that can be written on the quote-unquote big sign of a person's life. There could be family. Family could be the most important thing. You just got to live for family. That's all that matters. For some people, it might be work. I just got to work, 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 work. gives me value in life. Work makes me feel accomplished. For some people, it's the weekend or vacation. It's that just relaxed feeling of like, oh, work is done. I can just have fun. For some people, it might be a hobby, it might be money, it might be a political view, it might be success. For some people, it might be the past, where their whole life, they're just, something good or bad happened in the past, and they're living in the brokenness of that, or they're living in the glory days, and they can't move forward. For some people, it's the future, they're like, oh, if I can just get to that next stage of life, if I can get married, or if I can have kids, or if I can get, be retired, or whatever. And again, you spend time with people, you hear what they talk about, you hear what they're all about, and you get a sense of, you're like, this is what's most important to them. They're a walking, talking billboard for this thing. This is their life, and this is what they're pointing to as most important. So the question is, what does your life point towards? You can't help but point to something, so what is your life pointing to? And in the midst of this busy season where there's all the loudness and chaos, where, where the kind of the silence of kind of the normal year routine is really broken up at time, I think it's good for us to stop and to reflect, where am I pointing people to? What is my life communicating? I wonder if you, we surveyed the people in your life, what they would say. If we talked to your best friend, They said, hey, where does their life point to? Or what's most important to them, especially this time of year? I wonder what they would say. Or if we talked to your kids, we said, hey, what's mom or dad's, you know, what's most important to them? What are they living for? What would be written on the sign of your life? Would they say, oh, work is definitely what's most important to dad. That's that's all he lives for. Or you know what? Um, just having the, the picture-perfect family experience that I can post on Instagram or Facebook. Like, that's what's most important for mom. Or I don't know what it would be. What if we talked to your spouse? What would they say is most important to you? What if we talk to your boss or your family? You could go through all these different people and just just sit with that for a second. What's written on the sign of your life? Where is it pointing other people to? John's life was a sign where he got to point people to the Messiah. And we get to do the same thing. My guess is we're probably not going to go out into the farm fields and wear camel hair and eat locusts and eat honey like John did, but we still get the same privilege of pointing people to Jesus. And the question I really want us to think about today is how might God use you to break an area of silence this holiday season? See, God used John to break the silence of history to say, Look, the world is ready. I'm sending my son. He's coming. Get ready. He used John to break the silence as a sign pointing to the Messiah. And I think as Jesus followers, we get the same privilege. There's probably areas of what I'm calling gospel silence in your life. Maybe it's with a specific person, maybe it's a specific environment. Uh, a specific family member. Maybe it's a specific sphere of influence for you. It's a place where just talking about Jesus maybe feels a little uncomfortable or stepping in and just normalizing your faith feels awkward. Um, do you get what I'm saying? Like, I don't know what that might be for you, but my guess is we all have kind of an area of silence where God could use us to step in as a sign and say, look, Jesus is, really did come. Look, Jesus is the Messiah. He's what life is all about. Now, I'm not saying that every single conversation you have to have with every single person, you have to mention the name Jesus. I'm not saying that in every sphere of your, your, your influence this holiday season, that, you know what, don't talk about anything else Christmassy. just talk about the birth of our Savior. Like, I'm not talking about that. But maybe there is a place, a conversation, a moment where you could interject the fact that you believe in Jesus, or the fact that rather than shying away when you're talking about Christmas plans with with your coworkers, rather than kind of shying away from the fact that you're going to a Christmas Eve service, just make God talk, make church talk normalized. You know, people pick those things up. Maybe process the way that you're interacting with certain people and be like, you know, is this interaction gonna maybe point them to the fact that I believe in Jesus or that I, I'm a Jesus follower or is it gonna point them away from that reality? Now I'm not saying that we have to kind of go- it's I call it gospel burping or gospel vomiting where every conversation you're just like like Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You don't have to do that. But we do have to process are we do people even know Jesus is important to us at all? In any way, shape or form? And if they don't, even a little bit, then I think that that's a problem. And so the question is, how can God use you to break an area of silence this holiday season? Now, what an amazing privilege and an amazing calling that is. But I get it. Pointing people to Jesus is not always easy. And in our friend John, John knows that firsthand. He knows that better than most of us. Um, See, John, we're not going to look at it, but in Luke chapter 3 and in the other Gospels, you can read about the fact that John is actually thrown into prison. There's a guy named King Herod Antipas, and he gets angry at John because John is calling him out on some sin. John is following what he believes God is calling him to do, and he gets thrown into prison. You know, John, he's a sign pointing to the Messiah, pointing to God, and life gets really difficult. And the reality is sometimes living for Jesus, pointing people to Jesus, isn't going to be easy. It's going to be difficult. You know, John, while he's in prison, uh, he starts having some questions. He starts having some doubts. And we're going to look at this in Luke 7. Luke 7, 20 to 22. And it says this. John sends two disciples, all right, to Jesus. It says, John's two disciples found Jesus and said to him, John the Baptist sent us to ask, are you the Messiah we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else? Let's pause there. This is John the Baptist. He literally was prophesied about in the Old Testament. Before his birth, an angel appears to his dad. He has a miraculous birth. He's been pointing to, he knows Jesus and yet he's come to a point where he's been in prison, where he's struggling, where he's doubting, where he's questioning, where he's unsure. What should we do with that? Should we be like, come on, John, get your act together? You're John the Baptist. You shouldn't have any questions, John. You're the forerunner for Jesus. Like, if anyone should be, like, sure, it should be you. And yet, here's John. And Jesus doesn't scold. Jesus isn't like, come on, John, it's me. Like, he doesn't do anything like that. In 21, it says, at that very time, Jesus cured many people of their diseases, illnesses, and evil spirits, and he restored sight to many who were blind. Then he told John's disciples, go back to John and tell him what you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. Basically, Jesus, he gets this question, and rather than just answering it with a quick answer, Jesus does what he often does. He kind of takes the long way around so that it helps teach us something, and he just starts healing people, and then he's like, go tell John what you just saw. You saw me perform these miracles. Go tell him about it. Yes, of course I'm the Messiah. Now, what I want us to take from this reality is that, you know what, first, It's okay if we question. It's okay if we have struggles. It's okay if we doubt at times. If John the Baptist is allowed to question and doubt the fact that Jesus is who he says he is, I think we're going to struggle at times too. And I know for a fact that I do. And I'm sure many of us do. We have questions. We have doubts. What we can learn from John is the fact that when we get those questions, when we get those doubts, we have two choices. We can either take them to Jesus Now, John couldn't physically, but he sent his disciples, go go talk to Jesus. Or we can just turn our back on Jesus and say, you know what? This is too hard. Forget you, Jesus. I don't get it. I'm going this way. God can handle your doubts and your questions. He can. That doesn't mean he always gives us a nice, clean answer. I wish he would. Sometimes I wish God would just write his answers in the sky. Just let me know like, oh, that's why you did that. Oh, that's why that's happening. Oh, that's why this is so hard. God often doesn't do that, but he does work through through those opportunities to draw us closer to him. And so when we have struggles and we have doubts, we can take them to God. Remember, pointing people to Jesus is not always easy. And I think sometimes that means we're going to enter into situations where we're going to have questions, we're going to have doubts, and we're going to have to trust that God really is who he says he is. Now, Pointing people to Jesus isn't just difficult. It doesn't just bring up moments of questioning and and doubting. Sometimes pointing people to Jesus following God means we're going to have to sacrifice. And John sacrifices to the full. See, while John is in prison, remember he's in prison because he's been pointing Herod, he's been pointing God's people to God, John is executed. And you can read about this in Matthew 14. We're just going to go right to the end of it. Matthew fourteen twelve and 13, it says, Later, John's disciples came for his body, and they buried it. Then they went and told Jesus what had happened. As soon as Jesus heard the news, he left in a boat to a remote area to be alone. I don't think this is the way John anticipated things ending. He's prophesied about in the Old Testament. He's the ultimate signpost pointing to the Messiah, and here he is executed in prison. One of the things I love most about Jesus and about God's word is that it doesn't sugarcoat things. It never says, look, life is going to be super easy. Follow me. It's going to be just everything's going to work out exactly the way you imagine. Oftentimes, that's not it at all. Sometimes following Jesus Means life is going to be harder in some ways. Sometimes it means sacrifice. I love, though, Jesus' response here. After Jesus hears, we get this detail that he leaves in a boat to a remote area to be alone. Jesus enters into a time of silence, basically. He gets away from everybody, he gets off by himself. We don't know exactly where he went, we don't know exactly what happened. But I think it's safe to say that he was grieving the loss of his friend. We see that precedent in other passages where um, one of Jesus' disciples, Lazarus, if you remember his story, he dies. And what does Jesus do? He weeps. Like Jesus breaks down in front of a whole crowd of people. We may not know how God is going to use our life, how we're going to have to sacrifice, how difficult things are going to be. But we can trust that our God loves us. And that he's with us and that he cares more than we can imagine. Because if he didn't care, he wouldn't have come. Why would he have died? We can always go back and look at that. Just like Jesus told John's disciples, Look at what I've done. We can look back 2,000 years ago and say, Look, our God came. Look, our God died. Look, our God rose from the grave. He loves us. But we can also look at our own lives at the moments where he's been faithful. We could say, You know what? He's been faithful in the past. He promises to return in the future. I don't understand the present, but I can trust him. Now, as we start to wrap up, though, we need to process the fact that, you know, as signs, as signposts, our life is pointing somewhere. And following Jesus isn't going to be easy, so we have to question ourselves, is this worth it? Is it worth following after him? And I believe the reality is this, that a sign's value is determined by the destination it points to. A sign is only valuable based on the destination it's pointing to. Um, I don't know if you've ever been driving maybe through a small town uh, and you're kind of driving along and you get the sense that, you know what, this place used to be kind of more alive. You see buildings that are falling down. You see places where like, you know what, that used to be Someone's business. That used to be someone's restaurant. And you see a sign that points to it. And it's like, well, that sign is worthless now. It's not useful because that destination, the structure, the frame of the building is there. But it's not a restaurant anymore. It's not a business anymore. That sign doesn't matter. Here's the thing, though. As Jesus followers... We are pointing to the greatest destination imaginable. We're not pointing to somewhere just fun or great in this world or in this life. We're pointing to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We're pointing to the God who created you and he created the universe. Think about that. He made the entire galaxy and then he said, you know what? This place isn't complete without you. And then he said, I'm going to come and I'm going I'm to be born and I'm going to feel what it's like to be human and then I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to die. These people don't deserve this, but I'm going to do it anyway because I love them. We get to point people to a relationship with the God of the universe, the author of all life. We get to point to people to the only real hope that there really is. The destination we're pointing to is the most valuable destination imaginable. And so, yeah, as signs, we're going to be going through difficult times. Yeah, as signs, we're going to have questions. We're going to have doubts. We're going to scratch our heads and say, God, why did you do that? At times, we're going to sacrifice. But we have to remember, we're pointing to a destination that is alive and well. And it's the greatest destination imaginable. It's a relationship with Jesus. And John the Baptist knew this quite well. There's Probably the most famous thing John ever said. It's found in John 3. And this is what he says. He says, he's talking about Jesus. And in this scene, some of John's disciples come and they're like, Yo, John, a bunch of people are going to Jesus now. They're not following you. What are you going to do? And he starts talking to them. And I love what he says here. He says, he must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. He must become greater and greater, I must become less and less. John recognizes that as a signpost, as a walking, talking billboard for the Messiah, that, the life, that life isn't about him, it's about Jesus. Sometimes as people, we can start to get this sense, this delusion that life is all about us, that the universe revolves around us. Now think about how crazy that is. It would be like if you're driving along on the highway and you get really hungry, all right? You're driving along and then you see a sign and it says, McDonald's, two miles ahead, turn right. And you're, you're like, oh my goodness. I can, I can see those beautiful golden arches. I can smell that Big Mac. Mm, I am ready. And you're driving, you get to the sign and you quickly put on your blinker and you pull off and you get out and you go sit by that sign and you're like, isn't this great? That would be ridiculous. But sometimes as people, that's the way we think life should operate. That, you know what? Everything should be about us, and we, we want it to all just come here rather than to the one we're pointing to. But John knew that he must become greater and greater. We must become less and less. And God uses John in an amazing way to step in and break the silence. And the last thing I want us to look at is this reality That although being assigned for Jesus, pointing people to Jesus is hard and difficult, when you step into the silence, you never know how God might use you. So John is executed during Jesus' life. We're going to look at one passage in Acts 18. Acts 18. And in this passage, um, at this point, Jesus, he's risen from the dead. He's ascended into the heaven. The early church has started. Missionary journeys have started. And if you're not familiar with Acts... A lot of it is focused around Paul, the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys. And in the middle of uh, one of his missionary journeys, we get this scene. And it says, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, an eloquent speaker who knew the scriptures well, had arrived in Ephesus um, from Alexandria in Egypt. So if you're familiar with a map of the Mediterranean Sea, Ephesus is north of the Mediterranean Sea, and Alexandria, Egypt is south of the Mediterranean Sea. So this guy, Apollos, he's traveled across the Mediterranean. He arrives in Ephesus and it says he had been taught the way of the Lord and he had taught others about Jesus. All right. So Apollos is on a missionary journey of his own. And it says he's doing these things with an enthusiastic spirit and with accuracy. However, he only knew about John's baptism. And when Priscilla and Aquila heard him preaching boldly in the synagogue, they took him aside and explained the way of God even more accurately. So here we have this guy named Apollos, and he's teaching people about Jesus. He's on his own missionary journey, and it says he's doing it with accuracy. Like, he's not doing anything wrong. But all he's known is John's baptism. See, John was out in the wilderness baptizing people, telling them to turn to God, telling them that Jesus was coming. And here we have Apollos. He doesn't know the fact, like, There's certain things about Jesus he's not familiar with. We're not exactly sure. This passage is kind of puzzling for for scholars who study it. They're like, how could this guy only know about John's baptism? But it says he's preaching Jesus correctly. And so they're kind of baffled by it. But the reality is, God is using Apollos as a missionary to teach people about the Messiah. He's a signpost pointing to Jesus. And we don't know if Apollos was in Israel while John was alive and he had interacted with John face to face and then left and gone to Egypt and then to Ephesus. Or maybe one of John's disciples left Israel and went down to Alexandria and Apollos becomes a Jesus follower, all based on just what John had been teaching. Like, this is amazing. This is amazing. John would have never known how God would have been using Apollos. God would have never known, or John would have never known that, because remember, he's executed in prison. He would not have known that Apollos is a missionary in Egypt and now a missionary in Ephesus, and if you read on, Apollos goes on to other places. John is used by God, and his legacy is amazing. We see it first and foremost in this guy named Apollos. John steps into the silence, and God uses him in a way that John would have never imagined, that, look, I step in, And though I'm going to give my life, the legacy is God has used me and now there's a missionary named Apollos go telling people about the Messiah and who knows what other missionaries could have been spun off by John's life, by his ministry. Guys, this is amazing. When we step into the silence, we don't know how God is going to use it. We don't know how God is going to use us. So back to the original, kind of the, the question for us today. How might God use you to break an area of silence this holiday season. I don't know what it might be for you, but I think this holiday season, amidst the bright lights and the music and everything, we need to remember, he must become greater and greater. We must become less and less. He must become greater and greater. We must become less and less. And we must put on this mindset of, you know what, maybe there's a place in my life that God wants me to step in. And not be dramatic and not beat someone over the head with the Bible, but to step in and let them know that Jesus is the Savior. I don't know where it might be for you, but this is something in the midst of the busyness of this holiday season, let's just have this on our radar, okay? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the fact that you didn't stay silent. You broke the silence. And we always go to... (laughs) Your birth, which is the ultimate silent breaker, but it's so cool that John got to be the one that you kind of stepped into history first with and broke the silence of the 400 years and then broke the silence right before Jesus' ministry. And wow, the amazing fact that we get to step into areas of our life, be a walking, talking billboard for you. Lord, that's not easy, and you know that. Thank you that you promised to never leave us nor forsake us. Thank you that we can look back and see your faithfulness to us and your love. Lord, I pray and ask that this holiday season, Holy Spirit, please work in our hearts. Please work in our church here. Help us to utter these, the same words John did, that you must become greater and greater and we must become less and less. Help us to catch that vision, God. It is so easy for, for me, Lord, and I, I know for all of us, to just get so focused on us when you've given us the greatest privilege, the greatest opportunity, because you are alive and well. You are the greatest hope. You are the greatest destination. And so I pray that you'll work in our hearts. Lead us into moments and into opportunities that only you could do so that we could point others to you. Thanks for loving us, Jesus. Amen.